This is episode number five of the Individual One Podcast. I'm your host, John Ziegler. We're broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and we're distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the brand new bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and often rather hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. These circumstances include the liberal mainstream media having lost their minds and their objectivity, and the conservative now state-run media being so compromised and completely co-opted that they can't tell the truth without potentially losing their gigs. And in the media, that's what this is really all about, is gig preservation. We, however, at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted, and we're trying to fill that void. So far, so good. I hope you've enjoyed the uh, first four episodes of the podcast. On Twitter, our Individual One Pod handle, that's individual, the number one P-O-D pod, already has over 5,000 followers which is uh, pretty darn good considering we're just getting started. Please make sure that you're one of those if you are not already. Also, please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and rate and review the show as well, especially if you like it. If you don't like it, then you know don't really bother. But, but if you do, please make sure that you rate and review the show because all these things are important, especially as we get off the ground launching the Individual One podcast, not just here in the United States of America, but internationally as well. Now, today we have our very first guest on the podcast, and this is a very special guy. He is a longtime friend of mine, and uh, our friendship is kind of emblematic of a lot of things, one of which is my unique view on the world, because I am a conservative who has been a lifelong Republican, and he is a liberal who is currently, although he was once a long time ago a Republican, but uh, he is currently the chairman of the House of Representatives Budget Committee, a Democrat. He just took over that chairmanship, which is an incredibly powerful position. But the beauty uh, of my friend, his name is John Yarmouth, is that he is a very honest guy and tells it like it is, uh, more so than any other major politician that I'm aware of. And so because of the fact that this week there were major developments regarding the budget, specifically the the uh, continuation of the government funding and the negotiations over the wall, which went pretty much almost exactly as I predicted they would with Trump losing and then throwing a temper tantrum and deciding that he's going to declare a national emergency, which uh, does not really exist. In fact, he essentially admitted so himself uh, while announcing it, which was classic uh, Trump. You know, I mean, believe me, yeah, just believe what he says. And you're going to be like, wait a minute, if this is a national emergency, then, then why are you saying you don't need to do it? I mean, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you're bragging. I don't really need to do this, but I want to do it because I want to do it more quickly. Kind of kills the entire argument for a national emergency, doesn't it? I love the poorly educated. So without further ado, uh, joining us now is, in fact, Congressman John Yarmouth, chairman of the Budget Committee in the House. So good to talk to you. How are you, buddy? I'm doing fine, John. Thank you. I'm uh, glad to be in the majority. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> life is a little different these days, isn't it? Yeah. It's great to have the gavel. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I'm curious, since, since you mentioned that, so how has your life changed going from a minority member to the chairman of a, of a major committee. How does that change one's life? 
Well, first of all, I, I have a much bigger staff to deal with, um, so a lot more people I have to know and interact with, which is fine. But it, um, the, my circle of contacts, just on an everyday basis, has, has increased. And secondly, uh, people take what I say much more seriously now, <laughs> oh. <laughs> which is which is really dangerous, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So are you someone who's not particularly good at sticking to talking points? That's you know. So so a problem. You're, you're not going to start becoming too careful now, are you, John? No, it's too, it's, I'm too old for that. Oh, good. Okay, I didn't want to make. I want to make sure we weren't going to lose my good friend John Yarmouth to uh, to the chairmanship of the budget committee, and uh, all of a sudden having to be too super politically correct. But I get where you're coming from. Uh, all right, yeah. there's a lot of. Re- let me tell you. Let me say one more thing about being chairman. I have a gavel that is now the envy of Congress. There's gavel envy all over Washington because my gavel was made out of a Woodford Reserve bourbon barrel, and the hammer part of it is, is designed to look like a bourbon barrel. So it, it is totally cool. Wow. How did that – I know obviously you're from Louisville, of people who don't know that, but and so there, the Woodford Reserve, by the way, my favorite bourbon. Uh, I, I, think, I think yours as well, if I can remember, although you, you're, you're much more of a con- – yeah, well, it's one of, of course, i got to be political here. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> well, you're, you're much more of a connoisseur uh, than I am, having, having lived in Louisville your whole life. But so how did that happen? How did, how did you get such a gavel? Actually, it was my staff thought it would be a great idea. They came up with it, and they uh, contacted uh, Brown Foreman, the company that owns um, Woodford Reserve and Old Forester and some other brands, and they uh, found an artist here who make who does things makes objects out of bourbon barrels. Wow, and he made it. Yeah. Very, very very interesting. Very cool. All right, well, uh, that's a great story. All right, so a lot of a lot of reasons why I asked you to come on uh, at somewhat late notice. And I know you're real busy because you're not a chairman of the uh, budget committee and all. <laughs> um, the for, one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you, John, today was because obviously this week the. Um, the budget talks with regard to uh, the the wall and and making sure that the government doesn't shut down again uh, came to a head. The, the president did uh, finally uh, sign uh, the the agreement, but has declared that he's going to make a, a state of emergency in order to fund this wall that was not funded in the budget. You're the chairman of the budget committee. For context, give us a sense of uh, how big a role. And based upon the media reports, it was a very large role. How big a role did you personally play in these negotiations? Well, um, actually, the, the negotiations themselves I was not involved with. All of those people were appropriators. They were from the Appropriations Committee in the House and the Senate. Uh, but from a, um, an outside perspective, from the leadership perspective, I was involved in the discussions as to what, what we thought would be an acceptable um, re- resolution, what, what we could accept, what we couldn't. Uh, but I wasn't actually in the room. Again, those were all all appropriators. Right, but you you um you went to Camp David and spent a lot of time with the the chief of staff uh, of the White House, uh, uh, Mick Mulvaney, and mm-hmm. uh, and and that and, and, and you made a couple of statements I found fascinating. Knowing you like I do, uh, mm-hmm. you said, and this got a lot of play, that if Mick Mulvaney uh, was president and not chief of staff, that this all would have gotten done. Uh, far more easily and far more quickly. I, I think I'm I'm phrasing that correctly, or something close to yep. that. Uh, what did you mean by that? What what, what 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 does that really mean, John? Well, Mick, uh, regardless of of his philosophy, Mick is a very pragmatic guy. He understands the the, uh, the balance of power in the government. He understands Congress's role, and 
he understood the dynamics of now <clears throat> with Democrats being in the majority um, and that the, that the president wasn't going to get his way. I mean, he knew that. And um, so the president obviously doesn't know any of that. <laughs> so when we were in the room and there were, there were five Republicans and four Democrats, when we were discussing these things, it was obvious to me, both by what Nick said and what the discussion was, we could have resolved the thing in, in just a matter of minutes. It wouldn't have been hard at all. It's, and, and that's true of a lot of things going on in Washington right now. You know, you, you, people say, what do you think is going to happen? And I preface it all with, by saying, well, in a rational world, this right. would happen. <laughs> right. But we're not in a rational world because we don't have a rational president. Right. And I agree with that. But, but can you give me a specific as to, was it just fear of what Trump would do or that you couldn't take his word? For, for In other words, his word is meaningless and therefore Mulvaney wasn't really speaking for the president because the president could change his mind on a dime? Was that, is that the big Exactly. That's it. Exactly. And, you know, that actually happened on Thursday of last week when everyone was was assuming that the president was going to sign whatever the conference committee came up with. And then he basically said Thursday morning he wasn't going to do it. And then Mitch had to get involved and, and uh, come up with the deal that he came up with, which was you sign the, the legislation and I will say that I support the national emergency declaration. Hmm. That all came down on Thursday after Trump on Thursday morning had said, I'm not doing this. Okay, so let, let's just for a little bit more context here, because I want to understand, uh, you know, from, from the perspective of, of, of a guy who told us he was this great negotiator and, you know, the author of uh, Art of the Deal. Uh, and I've never bought, bought into this notion that Donald Trump was a great negotiator. And to me, this whole wall issue is perfectly emblematic of that. Let, let's go back a little bit. Is it not accurate that back when you guys were in the minority, Trump could have effectively had his wall if he had really wanted it. Is that true? I think that is true. And as a matter of fact, there was a deal that, that involved $25 billion in border security money, not the 1.3 that uh, ultimately was in the deal. He could have had $25 billion in a deal that um, he would have had by getting a three-year um, moratorium on or extension basically on uh, the dreamer situation allowing dreamers to stay in the country for three more years and he turned that deal down uh, and you know the republicans spin now the congressional republicans is well we didn't really have control of the, the senate because we only had uh, 51 votes but that was a deal they could have gotten democratic support for and the president turned that down. So, yes, he could have had it. Okay, so Trump could have had his, his wall, turned that deal down, and then he uh, loses the midterm election. And let's be clear, uh, could have come to a deal to keep the government running while Republicans still controlled the House in, in the lame duck session, right? But he decides not to do that, correct? <laughs> That's correct. Now, now, from a from a negotiating standpoint, did that shock you guys that he would he would knowingly and purposely decide? You know what? I'm going to wait until Democrats take over the House to finally make a deal on this. <laughs> Nothing shocks us anymore about President Trump. So, no, I mean we we. All right. Uh, well, how how big were you smiling when I think that? We, <laughs> well, 
none of us was smiling about shutting the government down. Right. But I'm, talk- I'm talking about purely the negotiation part of this, the leverage part of this. Oh, well, absolutely. We were ecstatic because now, you know, like we knew the dynamics had changed, even though the president didn't. Okay, so so he turns down the deal that could have given him the law. He he decides, even as a last desperate ditch effort, to bypass uh, the lame duck session where his his party still controls the House. He shuts down the government after the deal on the table was uh, what one point six billion for one point six right. right, and and then after a, a month long plus shutdown. He, when we do the second go around, he only gets about 1.3, 1.4, which is less than what he had before the shutdown. Correct? That's right. He made a hell of a deal. <laughs> now, John, on a scale of one to ten, you know, ten being total annihilation, custard's last stand, uh, um, and and one being, you know, he 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 won. Uh, how badly did the president get crushed in these wall negotiations? Well, he was definitely sitting bull. All right, so he, it was a ten. No, oh, he he got crushed. Yeah, yeah he, absolutely. He, okay, so, so it was, I'm sorry, I didn't I mis, misunderstood the scale. But <laughs> last night on Saturday Night Live, they had this great thing during the newscast of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi trying to uh, not gloat, and it was, it was I think that was actually dead on point as as to the way Democrats felt. All right, so you believe that you crushed the president in these wall negotiations, correct? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And um, and but, but you know, there there, there is a, a side of me that thinks that he may have wanted that because it enabled him to declare the national emergency. All right, we'll get to, to that. Do, to do something autocratically. We'll, we'll we'll get to that in a second, but I just want to okay. make make sure that uh, I understand where we currently are. So. If if you were somebody, I know this is a big stretch for you uh, as a liberal Democrat, but if if you put yourself in the position of someone who is in Trump's base, who really wanted that wall and believed Trump when you know he said it a thousand times during the 2016 election, he was going to build a wall, Mexico was going to pay for it. How how upset with him would you be, knowing what you know about how he handled these negotiations? Um, well, I probably would have to watch a lot of Fox News first to see what information <laughs> I was getting. Uh, but getting the information I have, if I were in in uh, in Trump's base, I would be furious. Yeah, because he he basically sold them out, and he may have done it. He may have done it. Let's go down the path you you were paving there. He may have done it. For, for his own, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, his own personal amusement, uh, because he uh, had in mind all along that he was going to declare this national emergency. And in retrospect, John, do you believe now during these negotiations that that was really his plan all along? I, I, think, he wanted, I think he wanted to do that, yes. Okay. And why do you yeah. think he wanted to do that? Because he loves to act unilaterally. He loves to act like an autocrat. That's and then there's no doubt. I mean, he, he, he clearly doesn't understand Congress's role, nor does he respect Congress's role. And most of his base doesn't really respect Congress either. So this gives him the opportunity to say, Congress is pathetic. They didn't give me what I want. I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. Okay. Now, with regard to the, the uh, national emergency on, on the border to be able to pay for his wall, um, where do you – I mean, obviously, there's a lot of – differing opinions on where this is going. I, I, I'm quite confident you know that, or believe this to be illegitimate, but how do you see this ending up with this attempt? 
Well, if um, if I am correct that he will not be president on January 20th, uh, 2021, then it'll all be moot because this entire process will not have run its course. The legal process, the lawsuits, the uh, eminent domain proceedings, all of those things will not have run their course by the time for over the for the next two years. So my guess is that none of this will actually make any difference in, in the final analysis. Well, that's a really important point you just made, and one that I've been making, and I'm about the only person I've seen on the right who is making it, which is that even if he wins and is allowed to do this, uh, everything it's going to take, the, 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 uh, the endless court battles, as you mentioned, eminent domain, which conservatives used to be against, uh, you know, the logistical issues, and then the actual building of it, there's no chance, you agree, that there is zero scenario under the best of circumstances that any of this wall actually gets built before the 2020 election. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Now, absolutely. and I believe, John... I mean, they may go down and put some concertina wire on land that they they already have, but that's about the extent of what will happen between now and then. Okay, and, and your premise is, and this is important, that if Trump loses in 2020, and that means a Democrat is president, and, the, and literally the first thing they do after taking the oath of office is they stop this process, correct? Yes. All right, so so under that scenario, uh, essentially the, the uh, election would be a referendum on a lot of things, but one of them would be on whether or not we're actually going to build this, this wall, assuming he even gets through the courts. But I would go a step further, John. Mm. I, I would say that let's pretend Trump wins re-election, which I want to talk about shortly because I'm starting to worry that that's an actual possibility. And mm -hmm. so he wins re-election. I, I don't even think that logistically he can get this done in six years. What about that? What's your sense on that? I think there's a good chance you're right. Uh, these things tend to go on a long time. Now, you know, the, the, the challenge to his authority probably will be resolved relative, relatively quickly, uh, but that's not going to solve the other problems, which is getting the land, designing uh, all the logistics, you know, they have to go down and build roads to actually get to where they build the wall. It's, there's a whole infrastructure that, that accompanies actually constructing the wall. Right. So I think you're right. None of that will well, I mean, here happen in, here by in, 2024. And right. And so then, then the only scenario where, where any of this ever actually gets built is he wins in court, uh, goes through with it, wins re-election, and then somehow a Republican <laughs> wins following him, which is a, I mean, look, we're living in a sh very strange world, but <laughs> but that, sc that scenario is uh, in the uh, the realm of Jesse Smollett actually told the truth. Uh, uh, I mean, that, I mean that's, that's just not possible. And, and, and so the bottom line is we're never going to see this great wall. And, and here in California, I, I relate it very much to the high-speed rail situation, which, which California just gave up on. I mean, these are logistical nightmares. These, they, they, there are, are numerous problems uh, that maybe you don't even anticipate. And really, I'm not even sure Trump really, really cares that much about the actual wall, does he? he just, he's just embarrassed that he promised it so often, isn't he? Well, of course. And, and of course, the, the story has been well told now that the wall was basically just a, rem a mem memory device for him to talk about immigration during the campaign. And it wasn't really a policy uh, uh, interest of his. 
and or anybody in his campaign. So exactly right. This is something just like virtually everything else. It's all about his vanity and his pride. Boy, that's a really great way to do policy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's what we've been living with for two years. All right, now, now, um, within this, I don't want to leave the, the budget talks without mentioning the fact that we now have a, a deficit of over $22 trillion, which, uh, you know, has been uh, increased dramatically under Republican president, Republican Senate, and, and a Republican uh, Congress up until uh, you guys took over a couple months ago, uh, or less than a couple months ago. I, I'm curious, John. And this, you mentioned we're no longer living in a rational world. Um, and, and, you you, you know, you and I go way back and, and, and we love each other, but you are clearly a liberal Democrat. And yet I'm wondering, are you now as the chairman of the budget committee, the voice of fiscal reason in the in the world we're now living in? Are you are you in, 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 in terms of where we currently are? Are you almost a deficit hawk in comparison <laughs> to, to where we I, I am? I'm feeling a little bit like that. Uh, when you when you look at the numbers and you, and you look at the trends, and unless you believe in what's called modern monetary theory, where they say deficits don't matter in the United States and debt doesn't matter, uh, and I don't buy that theory, uh, you have to be concerned because even during the next ten years, if we don't, I'm not, well, I'm not sure there's anything we can do at this point, but the the interest on the debt will be the single uh, largest item in the budget, except for Social Security, uh, other than, and it'll be bigger than the defense budget, which is now over $700 billion a year. Right now, interest, interest on the debt's about $300 billion. It's going to be more than, it's going to be up to about $850 billion if trends continue. And so what you're doing then as, as, as a liberal and i think probably most conservatives would agree too you're crowding out the opportunity to do a lot of other things mm -hmm. so so is it fair to say john and i don't want to uh, i mean you're you're a liberal there's no question about that uh but is it fair to say that on the issue of deficits that that um and i i even hesitate to even use left and right anymore because it's all been blown to smithereens but are, are, are is it possible to say that in the era of trump that Republicans are more pro-deficits than even you are? It, it, you know, uh, Mick Mulvaney a couple weeks ago said nobody cares about deficits. <laughs> and that's coming from the guy who relished shut it, shutting the government down in 2013 and has been one of the biggest deficit hawks, at, at least during his congressional career. So, yeah, I think that's possibly true. I mean, that, that to me it says... It is Alice in Wonderland. Yes, exactly. It's Alice in Wonderland. I mean, everything is totally upside down. And it's awfully scary as well. Is do you think is it your interpretation, John, that Republicans, to Mulvaney's statement, just suddenly realized that from a, a political standpoint that you get no benefit from being against uh, deficits? Is that is that what happened here? I think that's exactly right. I think what happened was you had Paul Ryan um, t talking <laughs> tough on deficits when he was in the minority, uh, and then when he became when the Republicans got in the majority and he became speaker, they realized that governing isn't as easy as reading Ayn Rand books. And you actually, there's a, you know, there are things out there that um, sometimes are beyond your control. Sometimes they are within your control, but they're politically uh, fatal. And they, 
That's right. what happens. Well, what happens when you actually have to govern. Of course, the irony is in the Ayn Rand books, you know, we spend ourselves into oblivion. And uh, right. uh, and so uh, she might have been exactly right about this. But I, I understand where right. you're coming from. That, that reality yeah. is is uh, is very different than in theory as far as the politics in this. Because let, let's face it, in order to cut, you have to actually tick somebody off. And uh, and nobody gets ticked off about with a bill that they don't actually see. I mean, you know, if we were paying it uh, individually as it happened, I think the whole world would be different. But, you know, in Trump's world, and Trump is really driving this, Trump only cares about what happens to him today. He doesn't care about even himself tomorrow, really. It doesn't seem like. It's today. And so what might happen to the country 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, there have been reports that he has said he doesn't care because he won't be around. All right. Now, That's absolutely right. And also, he also said throughout his career, you know, that debt was good. Right. That's the, how he did all of his deals. Well, exactly. Which Always is heavily in debt. Right. The king of debt. Except yeah, oddly, debt. except oddly enough, when it came to buying golf courses, uh, just before <laughs> right. he before he started to run for president, and mysteriously was able to buy Turnberry and and Doral, uh, which I will never understand unless Mueller comes up with the answer. Uh, Robert right. Mueller comes up to the answer to that. Okay. Speaking of Robert Mueller, I got to ask you real quick in our m- remaining moments here. The last time you and I did an interview, uh, I, I I basically begged you uh, to. Uh, shift your position on impeachment uh, after Robert Mueller comes forward. And I I made some, uh, at least some small progress in pushing you uh, in the direction of at least Mm -hmm. impeachment, and even knowing that he, it's very, uh, it would be almost impossible for him to be removed with a Republican Senate. Where, where are you currently on, on the viability of that issue? And where do you think your caucus is currently? I think my caucus is, um, slowly but steadily moving to your position. That is, that we would have a responsibility to impeach regardless of whether he was going to be convicted or not, because if we don't, impeachment is, um, is irrelevant. It, it's in, it doesn't exist if you, can't, if you don't initiate at least impeachment investigations and hearings right. on this administration. Well, that's exactly my position, so thank you for that's at least... That's what I was doing. I was repeating your position. <laughs> but no, but thank you for remembering my position, at least, because... Uh, and, 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 and where are you? I mean, are you, are you also uh, moving in that direction? Yeah, I've actually said publicly on a number of occasions within the last uh, couple months that I believe we're getting very close to the point at which we absolutely have to initiate proceedings. That's awesome. Well, that makes me feel very good, John. Um, yeah, you finally uh, convinced me of something. Wow, that is, after <laughs> after what is it, fifteen years? Six, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, right. fi- I finally may have done uh, some convincing of you, but th- that's good. It was worth the fifteen years. Um, uh, but because this is important. But but uh, all right. But let me take issue with something else in our last moments here because okay. I'm I'm getting worried. All right, John. <laughs> I, I'm getting really worried. No, I'm serious. I mean, I'm. We are down uh, the rabbit hole. Remember? No, I know. I I'm I'm worried. Uh, I'm worried about Trump not getting impeached for what that means about the future. Oh, by the way, real real quick, you said something, and I may have misinterpreted it. You said, don't give up on Mitch McConnell yet. Uh, now, I realize that was within the budget talks, but is there? you and I have talked a lot about whether Mitch McConnell will eventually stand up for what is right here. Do you have any hope on that? Um, well, I, I, my hope was shaken over the last couple months. Although he did end up coming, uh, getting involved in in the um, in this last shutdown talk, he 
he made the critical calls last Thursday that that finally got it done. Um, but you know, there are going to be bigger challenges ahead, and and we'll see see how he stands up. Um, I I think he's a little bit too worried about a potential primary challenge right. in 2020 right now. Right. No, I, I agree with that. I I've, I've, I personally have given up on Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader who would really have to turn against Trump for him to ever be removed. Uh, but uh, he's from your state in Kentucky, and he's facing re-election next year, and that, I think, puts him in a real bind. And then one yeah. other thing, by the way, before we move on to the, to the re-election question real quick, are you sensing, you, you mentioned your caucus, are you are there Republicans behind the scenes in the House who are actually hoping that Trump gets impeached and maybe even removed because they just are so tired of this? Are there, does those, do those people exist? I don't think there are many of them. I think there are a few, but right. they, they never say that publicly because they're much too concerned about possible primary challenges. Virtually every Republican in Congress now comes from a district where Trump is still pretty popular. Right. Okay. We took we you know we we took out the other ones. Right, understood. Okay. So, yeah. all right. So, let's get to the re-election question and I'm getting worried because um I believe that uh that Trump's power his 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 energy source is uh political correctness coming from the left and the media, which in the minds of most conservatives is the same thing. And um, and I had been confident that he would not be reelected based upon depending on who your candidate is going to be. But now that we're seeing who the candidates are and how they are positioning themselves and some of the positions that even people who aren't running are taking, like this uh, Green New Deal and scaring Amazon out of New York City. And uh, I got to tell you, uh, you guys, in my opinion, so far, and we're a long way off, are playing right into Trump's hands in every possible way, and uh, to the point where even I, John, even I, I'm, I, I, I have thought, oh my gosh, am I going to have to uh, uh, maybe even not uh, support a Democratic candidate or maybe even hope Trump wins because the alternative is even worse? I'm not there, but I'm saying that if you're even potentially losing me, that's a problem because that means, that means you've lost every Republican possible. Uh, do you understand my concerns and do people within you, your uh, party understand those concerns? Yes, I understand those concerns, and the, a lot in the party do. There is uh, another school of thought, though, and that is that the way you guarantee that you win elections in closely contested um, campaigns is you bring new people into the equation, and that there are many people who say, for instance, on the I don't I'm not advocating for a 70 percent tax rate or the wealth tax, although I do think we could have a higher. Prog- a higher progressive tax rate uh, on super incomes, but that that actually resonates with with a lot of people who otherwise don't see any hope in voting. That's the same thing with the Green New Deal and uh, climate change. Of course, the Green New Deal is like this is utopia. This isn't really a a, a rational or even a, a material policy proposal. It's just kind of. We'd love it if everybody in the country had a living wage and if everybody everybody lived in environmentally efficient housing and so forth. Um, yeah, we'd like to see all that happen. But are we going to get that done in 10 years? Nah, not really. And, but, but, and nobody's – there's very little, little – okay. you wouldn't find many votes for that. But, but again, you're, that talks to people 
that's the school of thought that that speaks to people who have been um, they've been um, basically they've become apathetic about politics. I, I, I get I get the theory. I get the theory, yeah, John, and yeah. I get I get what you know. That's you know that's a lot of why Trump won because he energized his base. To, to an insane degree, and, and Hillary really did not. I, I get that, John, but uh, you, you know I've said many times, the b- number one weakness you guys have is you always overplay your hand. I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe it's because you have the media on your side. Maybe it's, you know, you guys are more feelers than thinkers. Well, I don't know what it is, but you always, always, always overplay your hand. And your hand is tremendous, okay, but you're overplaying it. And you're overplaying it dangerously to the point where I think there's a darn good chance Trump's going to get somebody that plays right into his hands, and, and he ends up pulling this off and, and winning again. I'm not- That's possible. I mean, what you're seeing, though, out of Nancy Pelosi is, I think, exactly a reflection of that concern. Because she's putting the damper on Green New Deal. She's I get it. You know, she- yeah. No, she, I understand she, she's she doing well. The Alice in Wonderland. I, I've actually looked at Nancy Pelosi recently as the voice of reason. I'm like, how is this? Ha- <laughs> how is this happening? Okay, but but um, but uh, look, um, you know, I'm sure you and I will talk about this again in the future. And I don't even know what you're. I, I know you haven't endorsed anybody yet, but um, uh, y- you know, can we please get Joe Biden a damn nomination? Can we can can we make that happen, John? Uh, I'd be for Joe. I would be for Joe. Well, Joe gets you the, the White House back, okay? Are you, yep. you, can we make that deal? If you, if you guys nominate Joe and, 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 you know, and don't put somebody completely insane on the vice presidential ticket, I'm, I'm right there with you, okay? I mean, can we? All right. I'll, 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 I'll tell my, uh, my insiders that, that's, that you've given them. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Here's what, I don't, here's what I want you to do. Just, just as, as subtly as possible, tell some of the people in your caucus to knock it off. Okay? okay. <laughs> just just knock it off for a couple of years. You can do whatever you want afterwards. All right? I gotcha. <laughs> all right, John. Always, I gotcha. All right, John, you are with the chairman of the uh, House uh, Budget Committee. Always great to talk to you, and I'm sure we'll talk Thanks. again soon. Thanks, John. That's, uh, that's my good buddy, uh, John Yarmouth. Always great to talk to uh, Congressman Yarmouth, and we look forward to having uh, other great guests in the future. But it's going to be hard to beat Congressman Yarmouth. John is a, is a great guy, and as you can see, as I promised, uh, a very, very honest guy who acknowledged pretty much everything I've been saying there. And that is that uh, Trump is not who he says that he is. He's not a great negotiator. He got crushed on the wall negotiation. And, uh, you know, I think it was also very interesting what John said there at the end about the issue of impeachment and re-election, because those are the two things that I have been most focused on. In fact, we now end each edition of the Individual One podcast now with the current official rankings or ratings of what are the chances of Donald Trump being removed, which is different than being impeached. That's important to point out. I'm not even sure Donald Trump understands the difference between being impeached and being removed. But impeachment is, is essentially the House of Representatives voting to indict the president and sending it to the United States Senate. Now, that, since the Democrats control the House, an indictment or impeachment would not be that difficult, assuming that they settle on the right charges. However, getting two-thirds majority in the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, would be basically impossible at this point. But I, I strongly believe that should uh, the evidence be there, and I believe that it will be, in fact, I think it already is, Uh, that Donald Trump uh, should be impeached, if only just to send a historical marker 
that the, this presidency is different, that it is not to be accepted, and that the impeachment process needs to be preserved for the future should a even more dangerous person come, come along uh, than Donald Trump. See, I view Trump as dangerous, but he's mostly a buffoon. But the problem is he's doing exactly the same type of stuff that a real tyrant might do. Like, for instance, declaring a national emergency uh, simply to go around Congress. That's what a king does. We're not supposed to have a monarchy in this country. We fought a revolutionary war against Great Britain in order to avoid being part of a of a monarchy. Uh, but with regard to what Congressman Yarma said about impeachment, it was interesting that he felt as if his caucus was inching towards my position. And it doesn't seem like the, they, to they're quite there yet, but they are going close to it, which, uh, you know, was heartening. And it was also heartening that John finally acknowledged that I may have actually convinced him of something important, which has hardly ever happened in our in our long storied uh, friendship. So that that made me feel good. But I am I am very concerned about this issue of Trump's reelection. And as I said to John, and this might surprise some people, you know, I'm getting so worried about this, and it is very early on in the process. We're obviously early in 2019. The election is not uh, for almost another two years, a little less than two years. Um, but I, I view um, presidential elections as kind of like uh, aircraft carriers, you know, going through the ocean. They, they don't shift very quickly. And turning them in the other direction is very difficult. And once they start in one direction, it's, that tends to be the direction they go. They go in. And so the fact that we're just getting out of port, if you will, in this 2020 uh, election cycle, and it's going in a direction that I think is very favorable to Donald Trump, considering his lack of popularity, is upsetting to me. And there are a lot of data points that go in this direction. <clears throat> the nature of the candidates on the Democratic side that are announcing, as well as some of the things that the Democrats are doing uh, in Congress that I referred to with, with John Yarmouth. And the, this issue of it's really more ab about the big picture of political correctness than it really is about specific policy matters. And, and look, uh, you know, John said, well, Nancy Pelosi's holding the line on some of the, the nuttiness, which, by the way, right there, <laughs> when you consider that Nancy Pelosi is the one holding the line against loony liberalism, that's troubling right off the bat. I mean, you know, that, that's that's you know, it's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, that's where we are. That, that, that's where we are here, where Nancy Pelosi has to be the voice of reason. Well, you know, that's insane. If you know anything about Nancy Pelosi, I mean, she's a San Francisco liberal. She's about as liberal as it gets. And so it's the feeling, the, the, the political correctness of all of this, the idea that we're going to you know, live in a liberal fantasy land if Trump uh, loses in 2020 is scary to a lot of average Americans. People are not necessarily all that political. Those are the type of people who gravitated towards Trump in 2016 because they did not like Hillary Clinton. And you know, as I mentioned to John, look, I, I have never voted for a, a Democrat for uh, a president in my life. I did not in 2016, but I didn't vote for Trump either. I voted for an independent candidate because there was just nobody that I felt even remotely comfortable voting for. Uh, 2020, I, I can't see myself voting for Trump. 
unless something crazy happens. But I can at least, I, it's even just occurred to me, based upon the way things are starting, that, you know what, I might have to root for him a little bit because the alternative might, underline, might be even worse. That's, that's how uh, scary a lot of this stuff is. I mean, the way I look at it is kind of like, you know, with, with Trump as the captain of the ship, it's sinking, and it's sinking for sure, and conservatism has already been sunk. But, you know, the economy's halfway decent. The stock market's recovered. There are some good things happening that you know, judges are being appointed that are conservative. You know, so do I, do I continue on a ship that's sinking, or do I let people take over the ship that seemingly seemingly want to sink the damn thing even faster and we're not look we're we're not there yet my my concern with congressman yarmouth was it feels like that's where we might be heading and can we head this off at the pass uh and i you know and john and i had a lot of conversations during the 2016 election some of which you know did not necessarily uh connect or weren't consistent with my public position on what was happening in the election not because I was trying to be deceitful, but just because, I don't know, maybe there's a difference between your public persona and your, your private persona, although I would suggest that mine is, is about the same as anybody on, in public life. But what I'm trying to say here is, while I was confident publicly that Trump would not win in 2016, and boy, that, that didn't turn out well, uh, privately I was concerned. And I was very concerned with John to John. And, you know, we, we exchanged numerous text messages where I said to him, you, we're blowing this. You know, you guys are blowing this. It wasn't we because I had no dog in the hunt. But you guys are blowing this. And this whole political correctness crap has got to stop because it's feeding right into his hands. Political correctness is like an energy force for Donald Trump. If you take it away, he fades away. He, he, it's, it's literally his energy source is political correctness. Correct. That's what he feeds on. So the more loony liberals get with regard to political correctness, and uh, and for instance, in this you know just this past week, Amazon decided to pull out of New York City, costing thousands of jobs to New York City, because loony liberals, specifically the the Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, this uh, brand new Democratic Congresswoman who's getting all sorts of publicity because she's cute and frankly dumb and says a lot of provocative things, they actually essentially said they bailed on this because they were afraid of her. And in, and she's the one proposing this Green New Deal about essentially destroying our entire economy to fight global warming or climate change or whatever they're calling it today. And this is the kind of thing that scares people. And to me, Democrats need to make this 2020 election a referendum on Donald Trump. Do you want four more years of Trump? That should be the only issue. And that's why John and I seem to both agree that if the Democrats want that to be the case, you got to nominate Joe Biden, former vice president of the United States, who hasn't even officially announced yet, is said to be about 95% there in announcing. But I have great concerns as to whether or not Joe Biden can get through a Democratic primary because <laughs> Joe Biden doesn't have the record that's nearly as progressive as some of these other candidates. He's not young. He's not hip. 
and it seems like this is all going to be a contest to appeal to what the average uh, 24-year-old uh, pot-smoking progressive wants. I mean, that's what it feels like. And while that might do you pretty well in the primaries, that's not going to do well in a general election. And, uh, and Trump has already shown that he's very apt at uh, taking vulnerabilities on the other side. He's not afraid to attack them. And to his credit, you know, he can destroy people by, by defining them. Look at what's happening with Elizabeth Warren with the, the entire Native American issue or American Indian issue. And he has done a very good job with that. Uh, although he should want Elizabeth Warren to be the nominee because I think he would beat her. Uh, he, wouldn't, he would not beat Joe Biden. Not that Joe Biden is that great a candidate. Joe Biden is a gaffe machine. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it, that's just, you know, John referenced the upside down world we're living in, Alice in Wonderland. But the idea that I'm, I'm looking at Joe Biden as the potential savior. Is, is is Carl Barkley? It's just flat out ridiculous. As Charles Barkley would say it's flat out ridiculous. It's insane. But that's where we are. That's the that's as close as we have to a life preserver that I can see for getting through these next four years. Because let's be very clear, and this is something that that um, I think that the Democrats need to get people to think about. And and I mentioned this in a in a podcast I did with my good friend Matt Lewis, who's a conservative uh, writer for the Daily Beast this week. You know, because I think that uh, uh, some uh, Trump skeptical conservatives are starting to fall into this idea that, well, Trump isn't that bad. Uh, and, you know, the left is, is gone bananas. And you know, maybe we, we've survived this for two years. Maybe we can survive this for six. Hold on a second. All right, this is important. Hold on a second. The Trump you're reelecting is not the Trump that you got for the last two years. Correct. All right, because this is a man of epic narcissism. All right, this is a man who cares nothing but about himself. All right, so for his first two years, he at least had to pretend to care about being reelected. Can you imagine Donald Trump for four years not caring about reelection, and by the way, being at an age where he won't even be alive that long after he leaves office. So he doesn't care about anything. Anything. Correct. I mean, by the end of a second term, maybe by the middle of a second, by the middle of a second term, Donald Trump would be tweeting pictures of his penis on a regular basis. They probably wouldn't even be his penis. No, but there would be somebody's penis that he would claim to be his penis. That, that's where we would be. And that's not an exaggeration. That is where we would be. So let's get out of our minds right now. The idea that, well, we survived the first two years of this hurricane. Let's have six years of this hurricane and see if we can survive that because the, the alternative hurricane looks like it's going to be maybe even worse. No, hold on a second. If you're going to do that, let's at, least, let's at least understand the reality that what we're getting is not the same guy. This will be the Trump insanity on steroids that's what this would be the trump insanity on steroids so uh with that said uh, let me give you an update on uh where we are on our uh weekly or bi-weekly ratings on trump being removed from office and being reelected. i shifted last week to nine percent uh for being removed from office i'm going to stick 
to 9% because I don't think anything has really changed in the last few days that would go in either direction for the chances of Donald Trump being removed from office, whether that's resignation, which will never happen, uh, or somehow being impeached and removed. Basically, him not finishing his term in office, uh, and we're assuming that he he lives for the next uh, almost two years. But I'm going to stick with 9% on that right now, and I'm going to inch up re-election to 42%. Uh, for, for, again, no real substantive reason, just the feeling of that's the direction we're going in, that, that the left is playing right into Donald Trump's hands. It's still not 50 percent, uh, but we're getting close to 50 percent. And you know, he got through this budget deal. He's not going to get the wall, but his base isn't going to hold him accountable for it. He's getting a little bit of flack from people like Ann Coulter, but that's not going to last. That's not going to have a major impact as long as he's got uh, the state-run news media and Fox News Channel along with him. uh, The the base isn't going anywhere. They are completely and totally invested in who he is, uh, and it has much more to do with them than it has to do with policy. Let's be clear about that. The, The Trump supporter, it's about them and their own mentality and their own lives and their own frustrations and their own investment in him. I love the poorly educated. So let's be very clear. Nothing he's going to do about policy. They're going to believe him on the wall no matter what. He can always say it's going to get built, and they will believe it. Correct. So uh, I'm going to go to 42% on the reelect number, and uh, we'll stick with 9% on the removal from office uh, number. Uh, please make sure that you uh, check out our Twitter feed and uh, follow us on Twitter at individual1pod. Also, uh, please subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it, especially if you like it. You can email me at johnz at mediaite, that's mediaite.com, where you can find all of my uh, columns that I write about twice a week, many of them having to do with Donald Trump. And you can also check out my other podcast, uh, which I call The World According to Zig, which deals with issues other than just Donald Trump. Uh, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And uh, until Wednesday, which will be our next edition, episode number six of the Individual One Podcast, thanks so much for listening. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Individual One Podcast brought to you by the Global Story Network.